Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. The words of the author George Orwell, but they could well be applied to my guest today, Kamal Ahmed, the editor-in-chief of the news movement and the former editorial director of BBC News. At a time when, as Kamal himself says, trusted impartial news has never been more vital, he's taking lessons from almost 30 years in the newsroom to the news movement, where he is on a mission to address a global crisis of information, aiming to deliver objective and trustworthy information for a digital generation. The aim is to sow the seams of unity back into public discourse, and it also informs his own book, The Life and Times of a Very British Man, a memoir about the history of, and indeed resistance to, immigration in the UK, and a celebration of the role immigrants play in our society. Kamal, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much for inviting me, Michael. Lovely to be here. Well, it's a particular pleasure because I've spent a lot of my life trying to pitch you stories, and now it's an absolute pleasure to help tell yours. (laughs) In fact, the very first, I would say, senior media player that I ever met in my Seven Hills chapter of, of my life. So a, a real pleasure to interview you today. Well, Michael, we go back many years, I think is one of the most pleasurable things as you as you become a little more mature, Michael, as maybe you and I are over time, and a little more, a few more grey hairs than maybe when we first met. Mm. Um, you do realise that relationships really matter. And you, you start to understand that the network of people that have been on, you know, at least part of your journey or all of your journey, you have you hope at times helped them they have certainly helped you and I think Michael our relationship is certainly in that in that box in my mind so it's a really important oh uh, well I I, I, the journey you go on I totally totally reflect that and I I, you know I, I was thinking about this in terms of my first impressions of you and I was thinking one of the smartest people I had I had I don't just mean sort of intellectually take that as a given but sartorially here was this amazing sort of well-dressed I I think you were a business editor of the Sunday Telegraph at that time and here we are today and of course I I think so much of that story is about the movement of you and the movement of your career from the kind of sharp suits to the hipster now of the news movement with a totally new mission in mind do you think do you think there are many chapters um, of the telling of this story Kamal? I think, I think oddly, Michael, there, there is a thread through it all, which, which has actually driven a huge amount of my career in journalism. And it's, it's a pretty lengthy one now. And it, I was, you know, counting back, you know, it's, it's, it's 30 years. I started in the early, early 90s. And I think the thread has always been about why I've been motivated to be on this, in this, on this fantastic journey in journalism, which has given me so much, but also working with the people I've worked with is around this idea of serving the audience and as the audience changes you you change as well or you try Mm. and change as well I was very fortunate to be uh, one of the people who led the team for the relaunch of the Observer newspaper in the 2000s I was very fortunate I was um, uh, led the team that launched the first ever digital media section in an old-fashioned newspaper I used to be the editor of the Media Guardian and we launched the new media section to look at all these newfangled ideas of the internet and golly, mobile phones, <laughs> mobile phones that had text on them. Do you remember WAP mm. enabled? And I remember a front cover 
from the Media Guardian must have been golly mid late mid midish nineteen nineties with a with a phone the first WAP enabled phone and it said is this phone the end of newspapers and then going to the Telegraph Group as you mentioned when we first met as business editor I was business editor of the Sunday Telegraph and again there trying to modernise what the Sunday Telegraph business mm. section was about and how it covered the world of entrepreneurialism as much as the world of more traditional businesses. And that's really where you and you and me first got in touch with each other, because you were very much about leading the entrepreneurial uh, narrative of the UK and, and abroad. And that's why I think our relationship, you know, did flourish, because we were trying to, at the same time as you were starting your fledgling business on entrepreneurialism and the importance of entrepreneurialism, the Sunday Telegraph was looking to modernise its well, look. Well, I mean, I mean, to that point, I mean, I've, I've always thought you are an entrepreneur, you were and are an entrepreneur in the making, because I mean, one reading of your of your CV will talk about the Observer, the Guardian, the Sunday Telegraph, the BBC. I mean, it, it, it's the kind of almost like the quintessential establishment route. But I think you are quite a disestablishment voice in many ways in terms of how you see it, not least because of the, I guess, the inside track you give us in the life and times of a very British man, your your memoir, which you know, is is a wonderful read, I think, about identity and finding um, your your true self. I mean, what I'd like to do is just ask you an open question to to pitch the book to listeners and then come in on the back of that, if I may, in terms in terms of some observations and thoughts that you might want to pick up on. So the book was, you know, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to write it. And it was really just trying, my father is Sudanese and my mother is from Yorkshire. So I was a real north-south divide in the most extreme sense. <laughs> my father came to the UK in the 1960s. He met my, my mother and I was the product of that love and romance. And I think that what I was trying to do in the life and times of a very British man is just try and talk about the notions of being very much a British person, but also mm. being very different from the majority of British people. And trying to explain that, that sometimes sort of rather contradictory narrative for mixed race people in the UK, and therefore me, uh, fortunately, the Bloomsbury supported this idea that this was something that was worth telling. And I think we've had a discussion, haven't we, in the United Kingdom this century, really, has been almost dominated by the idea of identity and belonging and also whose history mm. do we tell? And I grew up in an era when schools were about kings and queens and the empire and, and frankly, the, the glories of the West. Now, that, that's not to suggest that there weren't glories of the West, because clearly there were. But it was really set against the contrast of the supposed failures of what was then called the developing world. And so on the one hand, you had kings and queens and that Britain invented everything and the wonderful, you know, empire. And on the other hand, you had sort of slavery and poverty and famine. And when you were in that world, maybe at the age of eight or 10 or 12 years old, clearly one looked a lot better than the other. And, mm. and you, you wanted to be on the side of the, of the conqueror, not, well, not what you were told was the conquered. Well, you talked about the glories of the West and well, and, and I thought, you know, when you described yourself as being British down to my Marks and Spencer's underwear, that perhaps that's what you were thinking, Kamal, and that's something. But I thought there was, 
that, you know, actually the contradictions, as, as, as you call them, are, I think they are the wonderful part of you and, and your story. And when you talked about, you know, England, cool, reserved, planned, sedan, hot, in your face, loud, chaotic. I mean, actually, when I when I read that phrase, I thought that's him. That that's I had never thought of it like that. But in terms of actually the kind of the yin and the yang, the kind of driving parts of, of the personality is that, I mean, I I read that in the most wonderful way. But I suppose when you were growing up in 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 70s Britain, where I guess conformity fitting in was 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 the key was the key thing. I mean, did you did you have any glimpse that that might well be your superpower in life? Oh, that's I think it was one of those things that when when you're young, what's in front of you is what you believe everyone must experience. When you're very young, you don't really realize that sort of people are have a different experience, you know, from the experience you have. No, I didn't think it was it was particularly uh, surprising. I actually wanted to hide one side of my life. I think you're right in the 70s and 80s when you grew up. There weren't that many people like me mm. in with high level professional status. There weren't many people like me on the television. There certainly weren't many people like me that I saw around, you know, at the school, if, if nothing else, as people you could look up to. So our generation, so that's the sort of generation that were born in the you know, mid to late 60s, we really were desperate for acceptance and we wanted to fit in. And that whole thing, I think, Michael, you you touched on, you know, I, I used to be sort of quite well known for wearing, you know, ho- <laughs> suits to work and, and highly polished shoes. And I looked very, you know, I, very, I really made sure I looked the part. And I think that slightly comes, Michael, from wanting to fit in and wanting to be accepted. And I think the great thing, looking back now, 2021, I've got two children, you know, one is 21, one is 17. And that age group, Generation Z as they're known, they don't want to be accepted. They want to be respected. Mm. And that's a similar word with a very different meaning in, in sound terms. But it's really important that we understand that respect is very different from acceptance. And I think that's a, that is a very positive journey we've been on. And I think that I have been fortunate that having that yin and yang, as you describe it, from my father and from my mother, has, has I think, helped me maybe navigate and think about the journey that so many people are now on. Do you think that if you had realised the respect or that respected was was something that that you would go on to be that you are the things that you've talked about with with, with your own kids? Do you do you think I'd be interviewing a very different Kamal Ahmed now in terms of the person that you have ultimately emerged to be? I think that it's a really interesting question. I think that. Our generation of, of black and brown people, I think our lives were much more of a battle. And I think there are qualities that have come out of that, yes. And it's funny, I think if you had asked me maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly at school, sometimes you felt you wanted to be different, you mm. wanted to fit in, you wanted to be the same as everyone else. When I was at school, I think, you know, you may have re- when I was at school, I rather oddly called myself Neil for no apparent reason because Neil was the most sort of vanilla British name I could think of and it was unlike Kamal which sounded a bit like camel and led to many jokes in the playground about got the hump etc so you actually chose and many of my particularly South Asian friends also chose names like Tony and David even though of course they weren't called Tony or David so I think that although in retrospect that now seems quite distressing that we went through that 
sort of painful exercise of trying to hide our very identity, it did also build a resilience mm. and ability to get on with many different types of people. And you rather, in a lovely way, described it as a superpower. And looking back, I now do realise that it, it made part of me, which has possibly been one of the things that has helped me navigate this complicated industry that, that, that I work in, in a way that probably you know, has led to at least a, a modicum of success. Mm. Well, I mean, well, I think that's that's an understatement. But I was wondering, do you think that experience has made you a more private person um, in, in the way that I was reading a Guardian review and, you know, one of the sort of the, I, I guess, one of the things that journalists were saying, well, you know, I really wanted to to chisel further into Kamal's views. And, and it got me thinking, well, actually, isn't that exactly what this book is about? Is that in terms of the sort of person that emerges from those experiences that may have shaped you, of which I wondered, is a more private person actually not an unsurprising, you know, sort of, I, I guess, result? I think that's a good analysis. I think that private and I think possibly a little defensive, a little mm. not defensive in terms of rejecting other people's thoughts, but defensive in terms of building a moat between you and the external world. I think unless you are a person of colour, it is difficult to understand how you are never sure how a conversation is going to go or how something might suddenly just turn when somebody says something and suddenly you're back in that playground of the 1970s or the 1980s where someone makes a racial insult against you or says something that mm. really is upsetting. So I think there is a natural defence mechanism for people. But this is not, this is not to say that is, this is unique to people of colour. This is, this, is, this is, I think the book, another thing that the book tried to do was to say that we all carry prejudice with us. And therefore, if we can understand that, I am, yes, I am a black man, but also I am a man, I am a straight man, and that brings advantages as well. And I don't understand, you know, approaches to the world that come from people who have, you know, other things in their lives that might make a difference about how people per perceive them, mm. whether that's their sexual orientation, uh, disability, um, their sex, their gender, um, their age, whatever it might be. And I was hoping by the book and hopefully from some of my experiences that people would understand a little about that idea that we all have to think carefully about how we approach the world around us and how we approach the people within it, because at all times we will misstep. That's not to be condemnatory, but at all times we will misstep. We will say things that are inappropriate. We will behave in ways that are not the best way to behave. And that is really what the book was trying to itch away at, that notion that we all have had moments when we have felt the other, the person in the minority, for whatever reason. And if we can understand that emotion, I think we have much, a much greater chance of, of, of progressing as societies that understand each other and therefore can create great things. And yet, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very well said. And I think, you know, the question that, that comes on from that is the degree to which you found the world of news a kind of edifying career choice when, you know, togetherness, I guess, is something that is personally important to you, whereas often news is a much more deeply tribal affair in terms of, in terms of certainly the, the publications, um, I guess, that, that you worked on in terms of how how much sort of satisfaction did you get out of the, out of the career choices that you've made? I've been very fortunate to 
discover a career that was a vocation. And I think not everyone can say that, but I know lots of people do. And my, you know, desire in life to be able to hopefully be creative, to lead teams of creative people. But the underlying and underpinning joy of journalism is trying to inform people about the world about around them mm. so they can be, their lives can be better than people who are ill-informed. And, and I've been very fortunate to be able to, to have a career doing that. And that has been, you know, that has been what has been important to me. How did you find, I mean, obviously, we'll talk about the news movement next, but before, but in getting there and segueing to that, the, the pit stop before the news movement was, was, was the road into the BBC. As a kind of shaping chapter in your life, what, what, what do you take out of it? Um, I, go, I guess both positively and negatively in terms of that experience. It's a huge privilege to, to work for such a remarkable institution. You know, BBC News, when I was fortunate enough to be offered the opportunity to go there as business editor and to try and help the huge audiences that come with that red tile of BBC News above the door and the huge responsibility that that brings um, as, a, as an editor there was a thing that you you learn so much from mm. it, it is of a different level to any to any other journalistic job how did it change you do you think you mentioned in an earlier question about tribalism and as you say i worked for the guardian i worked for the observer i worked for the telegraph who although not tribal they had clear you know points of view around the world and on the world around them and in newspapers you know that was an important part of of, of what they did and it was important that we had that plurality of opinions and good, healthy, strong debate from different points of view. What you learn at the BBC, and this actually does lead to a different type, but no less valuable journalism, which is impartiality. Mm. And what you learn, and it's so vital now, is the idea that using your expert judgment um, as an editor in the field with a degree of expertise in business and then um, following on from that in economics, to use your best judgment, not to give your opinion on an issue, but to make a judgment on what are the salient, important facts for the audience. Mm. <laughs> and impartiality is something which was a skill that actually led to better, to me being a better journalist, because you had to look at every issue from all relevant points of view. But, but I suppose your time at the BBC also coincided with a time where that impartiality has got ever more difficult. I mean, I was, I was listening to the new culture secretary on an interview the other, the other night talking about that that was her very complaint that the BBC isn't impartial uh, the you know a number of the, the sort of people like Gavin Esler and Justin Webb people people I've interviewed have, have often spoken about they've spoken in these interviews about well actually in a world where we've all now got our truth how do you actually gain that that sense of objective impartiality in a world where that is obviously ever more difficult the key thing for me, well, two key things for me were what is useful for the audience to understand the subject um, I am um, looking into? And second, what are the relevant facts that they need to know? And as long as you are guided by those two principles, I always felt you could get to a position where, although, of course, you may be attacked from many different sides. If you kept that North Star idea 
of impartiality, what is useful for the audience mm. and what are the relevant facts that, that, that they need to know that would help you negotiate this environment. Whereas you suggest social media, the notion of my truth and any other truth is therefore not relevant or is even worse than that, a lie. I think you can you can still navigate your way through those difficult discussions. And I think you do have to have a degree of confidence. I was the business editor through the Scottish referendum. I was the economics editor through the Brexit referendum. Clearly, the BBC was under huge scrutiny through both of those events. And many people were critical of how the BBC operated. All I could see working inside the BBC was enormous effort Mm. to every single day discuss talk through in internal meetings, in who we listened to, in the evidence we looked at to ensure that we retained that impartiality and that objectivity. Did, 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 you, did you love it as an institution? I mean, do you, I mean you, took, you, you used the word privilege. I mean, was it a passion as well? Yes, I did. You love it because of the history of the organisation. It is what I, you grew up with. If you're, mm. you know, I hope I'm not oversharing, Michael, you and I are similar ages. I remember... <laughs> to share our favourite <laughs> 1970s BBC shows. No, no. <laughs> I remember, you know, I remember when the Radio 4pm programme came on because that was bath time when I was a little kid. I remember the music because that was the music to go down to the bathroom and get, get my bath ready because after that was tea time. And it was part of the kind of, you know, that was that was part of your life. So it wasn't BBC. Rainbow then. So well, <laughs> maybe Rainbow when I was a bit younger. But so... <laughs> Yes, it was. It was a love of, of mm. type. Yes. As with any large organisation, there are things we could have done better. And I know that. And sometimes, Michael, you left having done a live broadcast or, you know, something and knowing that you hadn't done your best and you hadn't done your best by the BBC or for the audience. And so, mm. of course, there were lots of times when you knew you hadn't, you know, done the best you could have done. But the BBC is a force of for good and is a place where I met hundreds, thousands of people who every day came to work with an idea of trying to give the objective, balanced, you know, facts of what they saw around them. Mm. I don't know whether this phrase rings with you, but I was thinking in 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 the world of business, they there's often this contrast between the mitigation of risk and the pursuit of opportunity. And I wonder, in explaining your transition to the news movement, whether you're in this fresh new startup with a completely... 21st century proposition, which probably feels that you're in the business of opportunity and how to realize it rather than risk and how to potentially manage it. I mean, is that, do you think, do you think that analogy holds true in terms of Kamal at the BBC and Kamal now at the news movement? I, I wonder. Again, again, <laughs> that is a very good analysis. I think that of course, at the BBC, you must be confident, you must take risks. But also, of course, you are dealing with an institution of uh, great history. And it's important that there are, you know, you know, powerful ways to ensure that you don't put any re- that reputation at any risk. And that is absolutely correct. You are right, though, that the media industry also needs entrepreneurs 
and needs to have organizations that are able to push the boundaries and maybe open up some tracks for others to follow. If, mm. if we are successful at the news movement, which obviously we believe we will be, then who knows what may follow on behind. And in a way, the, the BBC, BBC News is an organization that produces many hours of live content every hour. So it is an organization which has to focus on doing that 24 hours a day 365 days a year. It is totally understandable and completely correct that a large part of what it does is to ensure that it keeps, well, A, that machine on the road, and B, also a tone and feel that people recognize. Mm. It is for other organizations, I think, Michael, it is for other organizations, Michael, to, to to push the sector on in a way that it wouldn't be right for the BBC to do. So you and I had a conversation just over a week ago with my business partner, Nick, and you were talking to us about, about the movement and everything that you're doing. And the exact phrase I used to Nick was, he's found his groove. I, I, I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought you were so comfortable pitching it, so persuasive that actually, you know, if today's interview has been about, well, how do you find your true self, how do you find identity in the groove? I mean, it feels like this chapter represents the best chapter yet. I mean, I I suppose you'd want that, but I mean, is that true in terms of how you now see the vista? And and I suppose, and in so explaining it, pitch the movement to those that are yet to, 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 you know, to, to understand more about it. I think there's a, there's a lot of truth there, Michael. I think and maybe you can even tell in the podcast, when you're speaking on behalf or, or about the BBC, you have to choose your words carefully. I was a very yes. public figure at the BBC. I remember there was a moment I was asked early on in my time there, and I mentioned that my daughter didn't watch the 10 o'clock news, which wasn't a very surprising fact, as at the time, I think she was sort of, you know, in her late teens. But this was, this was turned into a story that, that I was sort of suggesting that, you know, Younger people weren't enjoying the 10 o'clock news, which wasn't what I was saying. So you do have to tread more carefully when you are a representative of the BBC, or I think talking about the BBC, having been a representative of the BBC Mm. and very proud to have been. So I think you're right that there is maybe you can get slightly more in your groove and maybe a little more natural in the way you speak because you're not picking your words incredibly carefully. (laughs) In terms of the news movement, you're right. It's it is remarkably exciting. I know, uh, Michael, you run a, a successful business, but also you run an incredibly powerful entrepreneurial network. And it was doing events with you and often chairing events or being a guest on events with you that you, I learned a lot about entrepreneurialism. Mm. And I think there are some keys that, that I hope I've sort of taken with me from some of our discussions and also some of my job as a business editor at the BBC and at the Telegraph, as, as you say, where I met a lot of very, very good businesses doing great work, many of them from small beginnings. Uh, the first of those is be very clear on th- the challenge or the issue that you are seeking to solve. And secondly, <laughs> do it with people that share that challenge and mission really clearly. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to start the news movement with a group of fellow travellers that I am lucky enough to have known, uh, Will Lewis, who's the chief executive, former chief executive and publisher of Wall Street Journal Dow Jones for many, many years. We were at City University together doing our postgraduate in newspaper journalism more years ago than either of us would care to remember. 
And that notion of the, the, the journey that we've all set off on, I think, is a really important one. And in terms of the clarity of what we're trying to do, the pitch as you describe it, we are here to change the news. And when I say change the news, I mean solve the undersupply of trusted, engaging, balanced and objective news and information mm. on social media platforms. We know, Michael, that over time, audiences have moved onto social media where now the majority of people get their first hit on news and information. And at the same time, social media has become more and more bogged down with misinformation and bad actors. And there needs to be some mitigating forces mm. in there alongside many very powerful media uh, voices that are already there. This is not to suggest that no one's doing anything, that somehow it's a desert. It's not. Uh, there is fantastic social media content produced by many, many media organizations, but it's a big ocean. And the more of us that can play our part in mitigating the oversupply of misinformation and the oversupply of content from bad actors, the better. Mm, I mean, what I took out of, I mean, I think I took that message about actually how do you create the trusted source? But I also thought, you know, when, when we spoke prior to this interview, it was that I thought you really compellingly challenged the, the, the misconception that, young people aren't interested in the news. It might just be the way it's presented for them. And this idea that actually maybe a Netflix for news or however you might go on and to capture this was a really exciting step forward in terms of maybe how we access and digest the information that affects our lives. And it felt like a very 2021 solution to a 2020s issue. We hope so. You're right that we want to look at, when we say we want to change the news, we mean in terms of the type of ideas that should be commissioned, who commissions them, and then the style that they are delivered, not just on which platform, but also the way they are done. We've spoken before, Michael, about the idea of news can feel to audiences as if it is the teacher telling the pupil. Mm. We want to change to what we describe as horizontal news, which is peer-to-peer, -peer, which is friends telling friends the news. Let's find out together. And right. it's that warmth of engagement, and it's a different way of describing events as they are occurring, which we believe will lead to greater engagement with audiences who do want to be informed. You're so right. Young people or any people who don't follow the way that a lot of news is delivered, it's not because they want to be ignorant of what is going on around them. It is that the way that it is delivered does not connect with them. Mm. And that is where we think there is a large addressable market where we can help people understand the world around them. And, and presumably in, in doing so, you've got to hang out with a totally different gang. We than have the one new, perhaps um, you've worked with over the years. <laughs> yeah, I'm speaking to you, Michael, from we are very fortunate to be incubated by ITN in, in London and by Associated Press in the United States. We're going to be a initially a UK-US business, but uh, we, ha we are ludic ludicrously ambitious, Michael, as I think I said to you on our call a week ago. But yes, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in the ITN offices uh, and our small newsroom is is literally next door, and their average age is 
you know, early to mid 20s. And that is, a, as you say, a very different team of people to work with. They are digital natives. They listen to audiences in different ways. And what they think is the news is different from what, you know, the maybe more traditional people who approach the news think is the news. And, they, mm. and they're willing to tell us that and to be given the power to investigate and tell those stories. I think one other thing as well, which I think is very important about what we're trying to do here, is we want to explain and give context to the news there's an, often an expectation of people who join a news story, which is often series five, episode six, that they've already watched and remembered the first four series. But of course, people aren't in that position. As the old saying goes, never underestimate the audience's intelligence, but never overestimate their knowledge. People, quite rightly, don't have all the latest information at their fingertips about what you're talking about. So you need to explain and give context about where is Afghanistan? What is a budget? What does a billion pounds mean? All this grammar that the news often uses, which leaves a number of people feeling detached from the conversation. So we want to change, yeah. And I think it's often at the source of the kind of, you know, you you get a lot of establishment voices that are horrified that, you know, things that people don't know or what's And, And I think there is, you know, this comes back to this kind of, you know, the togetherness that we've spoken about in terms of actually joining dots, joining people. I mean, just in, in finishing, Kamal, I mean, obviously we've spoken a lot about your journey and a lot about, you know, the new organisation that you founded. There have been other cultural sort of inspirations for you, one of which is is the music of the 1980s, 1990s, the rise of soul music and also sport because you trained at um, Linford Christie's old club, the, uh, the, the Thames Valley Harriers. I mean, I did, my, I'm not quite as good as him. I wasn't quite as good as him. <laughs> we were denied a great Olympian. I mean, no. <laughs> but, but, but it struck me, I was just thinking, I was, you know, soul to soul, I know, were, you know, a, um, one, one of your favourites. They also wrote Keep On Moving. And I thought, is that going to be actually the story for this interview? It might be. It's it's interesting. It's exactly as you say. I think when you grow up, you know, not not of someone who is seen by many other people to be different in some way. And for some people, therefore, that's a negative. You are infused by looking up to people who have made it. And as you suggest, I remember the first you know, bit of musical education I ever had was was this, was was two tone in the 70s when I was very young. And just the belief from groups like the selector the specials the beats that you know black and white people could come together to create success and then as you suggest you know in the late 80s and into the 90s the 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 90s you know soul movement in the UK you know soul to soul the young disciples then moving into massive attack and and many others was that idea of success could come from the collective and from teamwork and I do love keep on moving it is one of the tracks of my you know days that was a great was a great uh, track for me and then yeah Linford Christie was as I say in my book was one of my heroes because one of the formative moments of of, of my life was when he won his gold medal at the Barcelona Olympics uh, the 100 meters and he draped himself in the union flag mm, and there moment. was that moment for so many people like me that Linford Christie was brilliantly black and also brilliantly British and he summed up something for so many people because of that and I think I think summed up in a funny kind of way as did Soul to Soul and many others the sort of 1990s and the notions that we could keep on moving 
And I've always kept, I'm always a net optimist, Michael, I think. And mm. now as an entrepreneur, you have to be a net optimist. Come on. When, you, when you are at one moment, you know, the legal advisor, the next moment, the chief financial officer, the next moment, the editor in chief, the next moment, the HR director, the next moment, the counselor in chief, you know, you have to do all these jobs all day, every day. So you have to be optimistic. But yes, I have always been optimistic. And I think keep on moving is one of those kind of tracks in my life. Come on, Lamont. Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?